this is, is kind of for those of you who may be just starting to think about market gardening. You know, the, the place you need to start out is with an income plan. How much are you, how much do you need to, to make on the farm? You know, do you have, is, is your spouse working off the farm or, or um, do you have savings or, you know, how much, obviously I think you realize it's going to take you a year or two or three to get up to speed with this. You're not going to just boom, start in the first year, be making a hundred thousand dollars. It's just not realistic. So can you, can you handle a few years of less income while you're, you're building your infrastructure? And, you know, this is something, this is a burden I have um, for Adventists is, you know, we should be having generational farms like the Amish do, where, where you're handing your farm off to the next generation. That's our goal. You know, Joshua knows, and Caleb, I think, is going to end up on the farm. We're, you know, it's hard. You're not trying to push, but trying to encourage. Um, it's their farm. You know, when, when we're gone, assuming the Lord doesn't come, we hope he comes long before then. But um, that's their inheritance. They can take it and run with it. You know, Joshua, um, Joshua and Kelly, well, you know, we'll throw out a few numbers just to, just to be real with you. Um, our farm has, has made, I think the highest grossing we did was a, a right around 150000 a few years ago. That was actually with my brother working with us. Um, we've, we've cut way back, as I talked about, as far as land producing. And then there have been extenuating circumstances which have brought that income down some. Last year, it was around 120,000. That was um, with six apprentices over the summer. We do an apprenticeship program, intern program, that if any of you are young and free and able to come, I think it's the best way, not that we're the best teachers or that we have the best farm, but Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of options in Adventism at this point if you want to come and learn on a farm. So we're what you got, okay? Um, but certainly hands-on is the best way to learn. So we actually, the honest truth is that we figure our, our apprentices are actually kind of a wash. You know, the, the amount of time and energy we put into the training covers... Um, well, they, the, the additional labor covers the time and energy that we put into training. So we're not sure that our apprentices really put us that far ahead. So don't think of it as cheap labor. Um, but hopefully they pay their own way, so to speak. Uh, but interestingly enough, Joshua and Kelly this last year made 60,000, just the two of them, on, on um, 
what was it, six-tenths of an acre. I mean, they had a little bit of help here and there, but it was mainly just the two of them. So that was actually quite amazing to us because I don't see Joshua and Kelly here, um, so I can talk about them a little bit. <laughs> they did not work full-time on the farm this year, and that's okay. You know, they just got married. We, we wanted them to, to have a little more freedom, um, so we didn't really push them at all. But they're very fast when they do work. You know, I would say, just from my observation of how much they were on the farm, I would say maybe Joshua was working 30 hours a week. I don't know, maybe I'm being too hard on him. But, um, you know, and Kelly, she also sews harvester baskets for the quick cut harvesters so she needs to have a morning or two to do that a week so you know I would I would estimate maybe half time so anyway you know those are just some numbers you can look at but for yourself you got to figure out um, are you trying to support yourself on the farm and as we talked about this morning Net income is usually between 40 and 50% of gross. Um, so if you're running the numbers, you know, in our society, I think somebody earning 30,000, most people would think that was pretty low. Um, you know, if we earn 30,000 in a year, we're feeling like we've done really well. And, um, and because we live simply, because our expenses are low, we can live like kings and queens on $30,000 a year. So, you know, that's, I feel like that's, that's realistic. Um, obviously, you can earn more, and we're hoping this next year, you know, with the paper pot planter and some of the efficiencies we've worked on over our sabbatical, you know, we, we think we can bump that up. You know, I'd like to get back up to 150,000 at least. Um, but how much can you live on? And, and to me, this is another part of this, you know, is learning to live simpler so that others can simply live. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, but I think that's part of Christianity, living on less so that you have more to give. So let's just do a hypothetical case study. You have simplified your needs and wants so that you, can, you think you can make it on 24000 a year. Um, so what are you going to need to earn? You're going to need to earn at least 50000 to give you that 24000 right? So how are you going to do that? How many heads of lettuce is that? <laughs> you know, we get a good price for a nice head of lettuce. We can sell it for $3 a head. So what's 50,000 divided by three? 17, eight, yes, 17,000 heads of lettuce. 
but can you sell 17,000 heads of lettuce? So that's where you got to diversify. Now, you know, if, if you're starting out, you have no idea. Well, how much can I sell stuff for? Um, how much do I need to grow? How much will fit in a 100-foot a bed? So that's where it really helps to have information like this book here. Um, the Market Gardener, there is, is a chart I'm going to show you here in just a second that is worth the price of the book, in my opinion. And you're not going to get the kind of results, you know, I'm talking about 150,000 or, and, and let me, you know, I said we make 150 or we've made 150,000, but that was, that was pretty much year round, you know, 10 months. JM is doing it with about six months of marketing. Um, you know, he doesn't grow all winter. I, I appreciate his balance. He said, you can't, you can't keep up that pace year round. So with us, it's really ideal with, with two families. You know, Joshua does the fall and winter. Our, our CSA, our spring summer goes from the beginning of April to the end of August. And then we have a two week break because that's kind of the natural you know, summer stuff, I, well, let me say fall stuff we can start having by the middle of September. So we'll take a little break and by the middle of September, Joshua comes back with the fall and winter stuff and he goes, well, this year he quit early because he, he did all summer as well. Um, they ended the end of December. Usually they go till February. And then we take a couple, couple months break because we're wanting to, to take all the stuff out of the hoop houses and get, you know, spring is our main season. That, that's when we earn the most money. Everybody's hungry for fresh stuff after a long, hard winter. And if you can have that stuff early in the season, man, you can sell a lot of produce in the early spring. Um, uh, always best to start small and make small mistakes. You know, you're going to make mistakes. It's just par for the course. You know, we started with um, 17,000 strawberry plants and man, we made big mistakes. And uh, so, you know, we'd love to spare you the pain, but that may not work. Now you're, I don't know how well you can see this, how good your eyes are. But this is, a, this is a great chart. He lists, this is JM in JM's book. You know, his main crops, total sales over a year. So, um, and then his price per pound or per unit. And again, he's not getting, you know, really high prices. 275 a pound for tomatoes. That's good, but not outrageous. Um, number of beds per season. These are 100-foot beds. And so you can see four beds of tomatoes brought in $35,000. That's amazing. Um, 
Revenue per bed, per 100-foot bed, $8,800. Again, you know, you got to be careful with some of those numbers because that's, that's, that's amazing. Um, we have never done that well on tomatoes. Of course, we're, we're in Tennessee where tomatoes are a lot easier to grow. He's in Quebec, so that has something to do with it. Um, it's his top... Well, he, he gives a number of days in the garden. Remember, Joshua talked about that this morning. Um, rank sales, that's just, you know, um, from, top, from most money made to least money. But then the next column is really helpful as well. Rank revenue per bed. So um, how much did that crop make per bed? And then he kind of lumps it into profitability, high, medium, low. And that's going to be, you know, it seems like no matter where you are in the country, it's pretty similar. Tomatoes are big. Salad greens are big. Um, and then the other things, carrots, you know, everybody loves carrots. Uh, the other things can have some regional variation. But this is very helpful information for giving you some kind of idea. Well, how much can I make on a bed of lettuce? $500 per bed, $450 for mesclin mix. So that's about right, you know, 300 heads per bed, getting $3 a pound. You know, they're not all going to be marketable. So $500 a bed, I think, is a very reasonable return for a bed of lettuce. Does that make sense? So this is where you start just kind of crunching some numbers and saying, okay, well, how much do I need to grow? Here's a, you can see a little bit here those totes that we were talking about earlier. Um, notice we threw in a few flowers just for, this was early spring, the, uh, what do you call those flowers? Narcissus um, were, were in and just add some beauty and fragrance to the box. So if you, if you say, well, we're going to do a CSA, although we kind of have discouraged you from doing that starting out. You're going to charge $30 a box. You've got 26 weeks. That's kind of a fairly normal CSA length. So it's going to be $780 per share. So how many shares do you need to make your 50,000? It's going to be 65 shares will get you to the 50,000 mark. Um, that's that's a lot to bite off for a new grower. You know, one thing I'll say about CSAs is um, you will have sleepless nights before your first CSA box of the year where you wake up in a cold sweat where you say, what am I going to put in these boxes? Um, it, it can have some stress. Now, obviously, the longer you do it, the more it's like, you know, it's amazing how the boxes fill up. You know, in the early spring, we have watercress in our creek, you know, 
just growing wild. We put watercress in the box and we've got mints and, and you know, radishes and lettuce. We can have all that out of the box, I mean, out of the, the hoop houses. So there is a certain level of stress with, you know, we've told them they're having a box this week and we've got to look at, make it look good and pretty and make them satisfied that they're getting their money's worth. Although honestly, many of our customers, I feel like never equate the box with money. It's like, you know, just sign me up they're not worried about money at the market. It's like, you know, they don't, they're not looking at, well, now, wait a minute. I think you overcharged me for this. They're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. 20 bucks. Sure. Um, farmer's market options. So, you know, you, you don't want it. You don't want the commitment of CSA. So what about farmer's market? Um, so again, now, this is going to vary probably on, on where you are in the country, but in our part of the country, the, the normal farmer's market season is May to end of October. Um, so again, that's 26 weeks. Again, you know, we have produce beginning of April, so that's why we, we start the CSA then. And then by beginning of May, we're full steam ahead. Um, so divide 50,000 by 26, that's 2,000, just under 2,000 a week. Um, if you go to two markets a week, then that's $1,000 a market. Um, you know, it depends on, on your region of the country and how good the market is you know, that could either be a good market for you or that could be a fairly poor market. You know, for us at this point with our market, you know, $1,000 is not a great market. It's an okay market. In the spring, we can, we haven't quite broken 3,000 yet. A couple times we've gotten really close to the 3,000 mark. Um, but, you know, probably over the course of the whole season, I would say average sales is probably 1200 a market. What happens after spring, the sales drop way down. And that's a challenge, as my wife talked about. So, you know, that's, that's doable, $1,000 a market. But again, starting out, that may be a bit challenging. So how about if you split it up some? So you could do 40 CSA shares and $800 a week at farmer's markets. That starts sounding a little bit more reasonable. 40 shares, if you have two deliveries a week, that's only 20 shares um, each time. So, you know, again, this is just kind of throwing out an example to, to, to help you to see the kind of mental, um, mental gymnastics you need to be doing. So then once you, you kind of come up with an, this is what we feel like we need to make, 
Then you have to come up with a garden plan. Well, what crops do you want to grow? How much of each crop do you want to grow? The number of beds, number of plants, number of seeds. And this is where I think you can see it gets quite, um, I mean, I can still remember very clearly the first year we started doing this and it was totally overwhelming. You know, I open up the Johnny's catalog and my eyes are just glassing over and it's like, what do I do? You know, there's 10 different varieties of green beans. How am I supposed to know which one to buy? And, and how many pounds of seed do I get? And um, it comes with time. When do you need it for the market? So, so you kind of have to say, okay, well, I want lettuce by the beginning of May. So when do I need to plant it? And you got to work back. And I wish it was just as simple as, you know, you got to figure six weeks or whatever. But as I hope all of you know, and we'll talk more about in the winter gardening seminar Friday, um, that day length to maturity is very much on a bell curve. And um, in the winter time and in the early spring, the days to maturity is not what it says on the packet. And unless you figure that out quick, you're going to be in trouble because all your produce is going to bunch together and you're going to have this excess. So, um, so you got to work back and say, okay, well, I need to seed this much lettuce on this day and then this much on this day and so on. So this is called a crop calendar. And here's a simple example. Again, this is from JM's book and this is Another reason why I recommend this book, because he's got so much practical information in there. So you see the first column, of course, he has the crop. And then the second column, this is when he wants the harvest, June 16 for spinach. So when does he need to uh, seed it indoors? Now, he, notice he's transplanting his spinach here. So he needs to seed it on April 22 which is going to give him a transplant day of May 9. And he's doing two beds. And so he's got another chart that tells him, okay, he's doing it at this spacing. So two beds is going to take this many plants. And so that's what he's got to seed on, on uh, May 9. Does that make sense? And so you go through each crop figuring that out. Now, of course, that's for, for harvest on June 16, but then you've got harvest on June 25, and then July 2nd, and yeah, yeah, you, you got to have this stuff coming on every week. So I, I don't want to scare you, but I want you to see that this is not just well, let me plant a few trays of lettuce and see what I can do with it. Um, so then once you've got your crop calendar, then you, you make a garden plan. Um, and, and let me just stop and say this. JM is very much a planner. He's very detailed in his crop planning. And that's not a bad thing at all. In fact, I would say it's a good thing. But different personalities 
um, handle things differently. And Connor Crickmore is very much more laid back in his planning. Um, he kind of just plants some stuff every week, starts some stuff in the hoop house. And um, when he's got a bed that's empty, he looks in his hoop house and, you know, this is, this is ready to go, so he puts it in there. And he ends up composting a lot of, of transplants. But in his mind, and, and I would agree with him, seed is cheap. You know, even, even when you're paying a dollar a seed for toma greenhouse tomatoes, that's how much you have to pay for some greenhouse varieties of tomatoes. That's a tomato, you know, one tomato. So yeah, you think, ooh, that's a lot to pay for seed, but it's all relative, you know. Um, so you may, and, and as my wife admitted, um, we're not super, uh, you know, I, I try, I've tried so many times over the years to get really detailed about this, but um, I'm not JM. And, you know, what I like to have is just a simple, and, and again, it's easier for me because I've done it long enough, but, you know, I just know um, first week in February, this is what I need to plant. This many trays of this, this many trays of this, um, and, and just have a, a list by the week of what I need to plant. And then a general garden plan. Okay, this year our brassicas are going in this pad. You know, you work up a crop rotation. So my planning is not as detailed as JM's, and that could well be why I'm not making as much as JM. <laughs> um, but again, you know, some of its personality, if, if, if you lose the joy of it, um, if it becomes a burden, then, you know, why not do something else which you can make more money at? Um, it, it's got to, you've got to wake up feeling excited about getting out there and, and working in the garden. And if you lose that, something's wrong. So you can see here, this is one plot. Um, he has 16 beds per plot. So he's got to have two rows of sprinklers per plot. You know, by eight rows, eight beds per plot, you can get by with one row of sprinklers down the center. Um, but here's his early cucurbit and brassica plot. He's planting three rows, three beds of broccoli, May 15. Um, well, then he's got, yeah, five more, May 20. He grows a lot of broccoli. That's, it's kind of amazing, even though broccoli is kind of a joke among market gardeners because it's such a, such a low return per square foot. And, you know, it's pretty much a one-time harvest. Um, 
but he's, he's got a large CSA, and so you need to grow broccoli. Okay, where are these crops going in your garden? How long will they stay there? You know, I mean, it would be easy if you could just fill a plot and take it all out at the same time. That would be easy, but it's not that simple because you got to keep that succession planting going, which means they're going to be coming out in succession. And um, yeah, it gets very complicated. How does it fit into your crop rotation? Elliot Coleman talks a lot about crop rotation. Um, what I will say regarding that is that as the market gardening world um, matures, maybe you could say, there seems to be less and less emphasis on crop rotation. And the reality is, especially if you're growing year-round, you can only rotate so much your winter crops. They're basically all brassicas, um, lettuces, which is Asteraceae, or Chenopodiaceae, which is your spinach, Swiss chard, um, beets. You know, those three families make up most of your winter crops. So, you know, having a nine-year rotation or 10-year rotation like Elliot Coleman talks about becomes challenging. And, and then, of course, you're dealing with multiple crops on the same bed in one year. So, you know... The, the long and short of crop rotation is just don't try to plant the same thing in the same place. Um, that's, that's really simple. And if you want to get really complicated with it, you can. But just try to, to vary it as much as you can. And Elliot would say even go so far as, you know, if you can't, if you can't move it around that much, just if you planted romaine lettuce there, next time plant bib or, you know, even a different variety of lettuce, you know, because they all have different growth habits and so on. So you're, you're just trying to vary it. You're not monocropping, okay? Ways to collect your data. If you're good at spreadsheets, you can do it there. You know, you just get a good spreadsheet and plug it all in. Some people just use a notebook or clipboard. You know, Elliot, I mean, he has notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of plant records through the years. Um, Ag squared is another option. There's a new one that Aubrey mentioned, Tend. Tend.com, I think, has some, some improvements over Ag Squared. But basically, it's an online software that, you know, rather than entering the same data in multiple places, you know, you've got your crop plan and then you've got your garden plan and so on, it integrates all that seamlessly. And so you, you put in your information. This is when you want to, 
you want to plant it, but you know how it goes. You know, sometimes you don't always plant when you want to. So you can just slide the, the bar over to when you actually planted it, and it's going to adjust automatically as to when it thinks the harvest is going to be ready. So you can look into it. They'll give you a 15-day free trial. You can get it and play around with it. Um, Tend, T-E-N-D, tend.com. It, they seem to be really trying to um, cater to the needs of the market gardener and continually adding stuff and, you know, taking a lot of the, the, the work out of planning, like... Um, for example, you know, you put in, this is your plug trays you're using. Since we don't use plug trays, I'm not real familiar with them, but 78s or something, is there 72s? Okay, so you're using 72 plug trays and you're, you're planting this many trays. Well, um, you know, you just say how many beds, how long your beds are and, and the spacing and it'll tell you how many trays you need, how many seeds you need to buy, and so on. So it can be helpful in taking a lot of this headache out of, of, of the planning. So Ag Squared and Tend are two that I'm aware of. Okay. It is important to keep track of dates for planting, transplanting, and harvesting. Because without that information, you're not going to, you think you're going to remember it all. But, you know, there's so much going on in your mind that you never remember it. You know, you do all these little trials. Okay, well, this I did this way and this I did this way. If you don't write it down, you come back at harvest. Okay, I know I was doing something here, but I can't remember if it was that those plants are those, you know. So the more you can, the better records you can keep, the more you're going to be able to next year say, okay, um, I was a little early on my spinach. I need to, to push the planting date back a week. You know, my, my lettuce clumped up here, so I've, I've got to spread out my, my seedings a little more. Um, so, so that information is really helpful. What are your yields per bed? You know, uh, I showed you the chart with JM's yields. Yours may be better, yours may be worse. Um, so you can measure yield per bed per 1,000 square feet or per acre or come up with your own measurement, but you want to standardize it. So, and I think... JM has kind of standardized it on a 100-foot bed, which is really simple. So all his calculations are done per 100-foot bed. The, the thing about a 100-foot bed is it's manageable. We used to have 300-foot beds, and that is not motivating to a harvest crew. 300-foot bed, it's like, I've got to go all the way down there. Whereas a 100-foot bed, you know, that's, that's not 
much, I mean, that's about the, the width of this building here. It's like, okay, I can see the end. I can make it there. And it, it motivates your crew to work better. Um, varieties, notes concerning variables to performance, etc. You know, the more detailed you get with this, the quicker you're going to achieve economic success. I think that's fair enough to say. You can use the notebook ag squared. So here's a few metrics. Um, and, and again, you don't want to base it totally on this, but, but these kind of help you keep track of, is this crop really making me money? Can I, should I keep growing this? So one way is dollar value per container. I'm gonna see if I can quickly find in the lean farm book, here we go. Approximate dollar value per 14 gallon tote. So he has a range of ginger $360 per tote down to watermelons, $20 per tote. So if you're a market gardener trying to maximize your space, which are you gonna grow? Um, you know, it, it takes the same amount of labor toting that thing around. You're gonna grow $20 worth of watermelons or $360 worth of ginger. Um, let's look at some others. Um, garlic, 325. Salad mix, $80 per tote. Onions, $30 per tote. You know, there's, there's reasons why market gardeners focus on certain crops. It's because those are where you can make your money. You can also look at yield per square foot. You know, when, when we first started winter growing, Elliot Coleman had kind of set a metric of $5 a square foot over the winter. That's what he wanted to make. And so that was, we kind of set that as a goal. So you've got 3,000 square foot hoop house. Um, that's $15,000 per winter off your hoop house. How much does a hoop house that size cost? If you put it up yourself, it'll run you right at $10,000, depending on the trade rate with China, the tariffs, you know, steel is going up. Um, how many other investments do you know that you can you can pay off in one year and actually make a profit on. That's, there's, you know, hoop house growing has tremendous potential and, and there are many people making much more than $5 a square foot. It used to be $20,000 an acre, um, you know, was considered a minimum corn. I think I figure a good yield of corn will give you maybe sweet corn, maybe $12,000 an acre. That's doing well. Um, that's just not enough. 
you know, most crops, you want them to be yielding at least $100,000 an acre. Um, even if you're not growing an acre's worth of them, you know, you figure out that's, that's what you would get. Another fun metric to kind of play with is how much are you making per hour in your harvesting? Can you, can you harvest $30 worth of produce an hour? That's, uh, that was kind of the old metric, but Connor Crickmore says you need to be making $100 an hour in your harvesting. So radishes are, are $3 a bunch, so you need to be able to harvest and wash and pack um, 30 30 bunches of radishes an hour. That's not impossible, although, I mean, it depends on weed pressure and, and the health of your radishes, how much, how much uh, selecting you have to do. But if you've got a good bed of radishes and you're just, you know, bunch, yeah, picking them and bunching them, washing them off. Um, but that just gives you an idea. Okay, well, can I can I harvest $100 worth of strawberries an hour? Probably not, actually. Har uh, strawberries are a great crop to sell, but they're actually quite difficult to grow. So I'm just going to mention a few things from Ben Hartman's Lean Farm book. Ben Hartman, or the Lean System, talks about the five S's, actually, some have added a sixth S. Jonathan, my son who does Farmer's Friend, he's big into lean manufacturing. And so I'm learning from him and he brings in people who do training on lean, lean manufacturing. So the sixth S is safety. But the nice thing about six S is it's a lot like success. The successes, the successes that you wanna have um, sort, ruthlessly eliminate anything not absolutely necessary for your production system. One of the big challenges of small farms is too much junk, you know, too many tools that you're not using. Um, so get rid of all of that stuff that's cluttering your progress, that you're tripping over. Only keep those things that are actually going to make you money. Set in order is the second S. Um, oh, and, and my son Caleb and I have been working hard on this uh, in our barn. You know, we've got a big old tobacco barn that we've renovated. And, you know, we are making a place for everything that can hang up. And we're labeling it so everybody knows where that goes. And so it's never a question of where's this or what am I supposed to do with this? Well, just go look and put it back where you got it from. You know, you would be amazed at how many hours are spent looking for tools. And um, it's ridiculous. You can't make money wandering around your farm looking for tools. Um, you know, set it in order. 
And again, put your tools where you're going to use them, as close to, you're going to, to where you're going to use them as possible. That's another thing on our list of things to do. We're going to put two tool walls. We have a tool wall, but it's up at the barn. We're going to put two tool walls by where our hoop houses are so you're only ever, you know, 20 paces from the tool you need rather than walking all the way up to the barn. Um, shine, you want to keep it clean and well lit, standardize, um, standardize everything you can. Don't have a bunch of different odd containers around. Figure out which containers work best for you so they all stack. Um, this is huge. Tools, you know, do you need five different cultivating tools or can you standardize down to two? Ben Hartman uses one harvesting knife, you know, rather than a bunch of different kinds. You got to figure that out. But the more you can do that, the more efficient you're going to be. Sustain. Little attentions often repeated. For us, this was a step we took quite a few years ago. Friday is not a normal work day on the farm. We do no normal well, I shouldn't say, I mean, there are exceptions in rare cases, but for the most part, Friday is a day to sustain, to do the cleaning that didn't get done during the week, to put away any tools that aren't where they go, to do all those little things that make you more efficient through the rest of the week. And, and, and of course, for us, it's also preparing us for the Sabbath which we can enter into much more at peace and rest. You know, I know too many Adventist farmers. Well, I don't know too many Adventist farmers, but I, I, I wish I knew more Adventist farmers. But there are too many people I know of who enter into Sabbath. It's like, okay, you know, they're, they're putting away the last tools and they're running inside to wash their hands off as the sun's going down. That's not God's plan, I don't believe. So again, the sixth S is sustain. And um, here are four principles of establishing lean habits from the beginning. These are things that um, Ben Hartman talks about. Put in your 10,000 hours. Are any of you familiar with the 10,000 hour? I guess, what was the book? There was some book. Tipping point. Okay, so the idea is that to really master something, you need to do it for 10,000 hours. Um, that's a little discouraging. But, hey, it's, there's more truth to it than you might want to admit. Um, you know, the more of those 10,000 hours you can put in on somebody else's farm, the less mistakes you're going to make yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's more fun to learn from somebody else's mistakes than your own. Um, test in small batches. Don't, you know, when you come up with this great new idea, don't transform your farm all at once from what was working to what you think is going to be better. Test it. Make sure it's going to work in small batches. 
add infrastructure capacity in small increments. Again, we, we needed a lot of this advice, but we didn't have it when we were starting out. Um, you'll be much more wise in your investing if you invest in small increments. You know, don't add three hoop houses in one year. Um, in fact, I've heard a good rule for hoop houses. Don't add a new hoop house until you're maximizing the use of what you've got. And then you add another hoop house. Avoid bad debt. Is it investment or is it speculation? I'll tell you, if you are new at small farming and you take out a loan to start your farm, you're in trouble because that's bad debt. Um, if, if you know what you're doing, and I, I don't think Matt Dealey would mind me saying this, they are, they are borrowing money this year to improve their farm because they know they have the market they know what they're doing that's investment you know um so so i know we we want to be very careful about debt and ideally we want to stay totally out of debt but i can tell you i don't from my study debt is not sin um debt is to be avoided if at all possible and if you're in it, you want to get out as quickly as possible. But there may be times when borrowing a little money, if you feel confident in what you're doing, is not all bad. So, yeah, the, the slide that was missing there that I'll end on well, I won't end on this slide because it's not in this one. I'm sorry. I just pulled up the wrong presentation. Was on um, how much can you expect to make and how much does it cost to start to start up? If, if you know what you're doing, I've known farmers who have made 60000 their first year. There's a farm up in Michigan, northern Michigan. First year was 60,000. Second year was, I think, 180,000. Um, you know, in three years, man, they're, they're running with it. Uh, but it was, it was a couple. They had both worked on farms for multiple years. They knew what they were doing. They had a plan. Um, there's a farm in northern Idaho that just started up two years ago. I think the first year they made 30,000. The second year, I think, was 60,000. And they're hoping to double that this next year. Um, the one I'm talking about is called Moose Meadow. They, they moved from Maine really they knew what they were doing so you know those are are reasonable numbers if you know what you're doing um, if you don't 
don't expect that and just expect that there's going to be a learning curve. Uh, you know, I've told you what we're doing. We've been doing it 20 years. As far as investment, you know, JM has some numbers in his book. I think he talks about like 35,000 or something. This is what I would say. Um, I would say minimum investment would be 5,000 just for some basic tools and stuff. Um, Ideally, if you know what you're doing, well, let me just say this, you're never going to finish investing in your farm. You're always going to be upgrading and adding. I, I hope to get to the point someday um, where we have all the infrastructure we want and we're just maintaining. And I believe when we get to that point, we can net 60%. I think that's reasonable, but as long as you're in the building phase of a farm, you're going to be doing well to net 40%. Um, so if, you know, if I, I said on the low end, 5,000 on, on the high end, you know, sky's the limit, but 50,000, you can easily spend 50,000, um, on all the kinds of things I listed in the handout that you got earlier on. But this is what I'll really end with, and that is just the reality that, is it a calling? Has, do you feel God calling you to do it? And if you do, money is not the limiting factor. Um, God's biddings are enablings, right? So don't be discouraged if you don't have that kind of money to invest and you're saying, well, you know, what hope do I have? Uh, God will open ways. There's all, we could tell you all kinds of stories. I've already heard stories of others here at the conference this weekend um, of amazing providence. I'm going to share some Sabbath morning if you get up bright and early for the devotional. So that's really the bottom line. You know, don't go into it for the money. I think I've tried to prove that you can make a decent living at it with hard work and planning and so on. But you go into it, I believe you should go into it because you feel God calling you to it. For us, it was for our family, first and foremost. I wanted to do something that I could be home-based and that I could work with my kids. And um, that, was, that was what the Lord opened up for us. Um, you know, we wanted... As my wife said, he strongly impressed us that we were to focus, you know, I was focused on, Lord, how am I going to support my family? And he made it very clear, you don't worry about that. You focus on service, and I'll take care of the rest. Amen. And that's our testimony. So, 
again, I hope we haven't overwhelmed you, but we want to be as realistic as possible. It's not an easy thing to get into, but there's hope in the soil and we need more Adventist market gardeners. You heard about the witnessing opportunities. There's incredible opportunities. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.